From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. The mind is what the brain does. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities that we find while searching the world over. The internet, the airwaves, basements and attics, wherever there are sound files, CDs, tapes, MP3s, A-tracks, or LPs. Then we repackage it and replay it on ReSound. You are using only a fraction of your true brain potential. The human body is so complex, so efficient, and so delicately balanced that it's just an incredible marvel. Your heart will beat 3 billion times in your lifetime. Your nose can remember 50,000 smells. Your eye can detect 10 million colors. And while each system, circulatory, respiratory, visual, is in and of itself worthy of awe, perhaps there is none more important or complex than the human brain. Brain and brain, what is brain? To be your best self, you must have a brain that works at its best. Poets may deem the heart as the symbolic center of human emotion, but we know better. Today on ReSound, it's all about the brain. The brain is the greatest machine on earth. Something in your brain has to say to your heart, beat, beat, beat. With great complexity comes a great possibility that things can go wrong. Kay Redfield Jameson is a psychiatrist who suffers from one of the diseases she treats, bipolar disorder. She's written extensively about the disease and its possible links to creativity. In our first story, Dira Sujan of Radio Netherlands talks to people who suffer from bipolar disorder about the paradox of living with debilitating depression on the one hand and periods of intense euphoria and whirlwinds of creative productivity on the other. It's called Touched by Fire. I had a severe depression when I was nine, and I had depressions throughout my uh, childhood and um, adult life. And at some point, I also started to get manias. I nearly died because of the cells. I have a very severe form of this disease. I have very psychotic manias, and I have very suicidal depressions. I'm 43 years old. I have medication for the last two years. I'm out of a job. I've been doing uh, a lot of stuff, a law study, pharmacy study, uh, some technical studies, human movement science, shiatsu. Uh, I did all sorts of things and never, ever finished. I went to see a therapist when I was about 22 and it was never discovered. I was actually diagnosed with another disorder until at some point I read Jameson's book uh, The Unquiet Mind and recognized so many things that I thought my god this is what I have it's nothing to do with my childhood or you know inner conflict or whatever it's just something going wrong in my brain it's just an illness there's nothing romantic about this illness for anyone who has it or for their family members. It's a devastating destructive disease. It has a very high suicide rate. It kills a lot of people. It kills a lot of lives. It ruins people's existences. Three uh, months, I just worked like hell. 
and then you get a big depression and when I come out of it, everything is gone. I have to start over again and it lost its glory. It, it's gone. So I went to my therapist and I said, well, you know, I read this book and uh, I think this is what I have. I think this is what the problem is. He accused me of acting out and would not believe me and would not talk about the subject. It was terrible. I had to um, become psychotic before I was actually believed and then he dumped me. The average untreated mania will last about one to three months. The average untreated bipolar depression, uh, depressive episode, will last about nine months at least. So these are very long periods of being ill, particularly with depression. And then most people have periods of being normal. As the illness progresses, if people don't get treated, now this is a very treatable illness, and that's the most important thing to say about it. It's very treatable. But if it is not treated, it will, over time, have a tendency to get worse, become more uh, severe, and uh, occur more rapidly and more often. I had a paranoid psychosis. That means... Um, I believed that there was a, a conspiracy out to kill me and I fled my house at some point. I tried to escape and I uh, wandered the streets for a while until I went to the police and told them my you know, story that was becoming weirder and weirder every minute. And they got me hospitalised and even there they didn't really realise the extent to which I was psychotic. They thought I was dissociative at the time. And, um, well, when I went back to my psychiatrist, he refused to see me. So I went to the big expert on mental depressive illness uh, in this country, Dr. Nolan, and he sent me to someone else, and they diagnosed me in the end. But I had to wait for about a year and a half to get properly diagnosed before I, you know, after I already knew myself. Manic depression is a very genetic illness. It runs very strongly in families, as does suicide and mania and depression. It's also the sensitive and the gifted that often get afflicted by this kind of illness. There seems to be quite a strong link between the mood disorders, including depression, and certainly manic depression and creativity. And there are about at least 25 studies showing that, that there's... Obviously, most people who are creative don't have manic depressive illness or depression, but... If you look at a group of highly creative people, they are disproportionately likely to have suffered from mood disorders. Alfred, Lord Tennyson, poet, depressive. depressive. Five uncles and two brothers, insane. Two aunts with recurrent depression. Father, manic depressive. Two brothers and two sisters, depressive. Robert Schumann, composer, Manic, manic depressive. depressive. Father, manic depressive. Mother, depressive. Sister and cousin, morphine addict. Son, psychotic. William James, philosopher and psychologist. Depressive. 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 Brother, Henry James, novelist. Depressive. depressive. Father and sister, depressive. Brother, manic depressive. Virginia Woolf, writer. Manic depressive. Dies by suicide. Grandfather, aunt, sister, brother. Depressive. Ernest Hemingway, writer. Manic, manic depressive, depressive dies by suicide. Father, aunt, uncle die by suicide. suicide. Vincent van Gogh, painter. Manic, manic depressive, depressive dies by suicide. Brother and sister psychotic. Brother dies by suicide. suicide.
most people have a lot of ideas and increased energy when they're mildly manic. Uh, they work without much need for sleep. But the ideas are not always great, and people often have to go back and edit and make it more disciplined. When I was manic, I was clearly far more creative, and the drawing and the writing just proliferated. I could write for 16 hours a day. I could just go on. It wouldn't get out of hand. I would just get hypermanic, which is a very nice state to be in. Very clear in your head. Every now and then I have the urge to make pants and shirts and, and coats. And many times, yeah, the designs are, <laughs> well, special and out of the ordinary. Yeah, when you wake up, when you get out of your creative state and the only thing you can do is throw it away. It's work of a madman, and it's not for the world to see. It's a frightening, horrible experience. It's a frightening, horrible experience. If I wanted a mania, I used to do that in my studies, if I wanted a mania, I would just not sleep for a, for a few days, So, and that can actually bring on mania. And... I would do that when I had exams, and I would get manic, and I could do my exams. And after that, of course, I would sort of, you know, crash. I would get extremely depressed for months. Three or four weeks of hypermania would be followed by two or three months of depression, and that's a very high price to pay. Certainly if you could bottle that experience of high mood, high intensity, limitless energy, great joy and joie de vivre and passion for life, of course people would sign up for it in a heartbeat. But it doesn't work that way. Mania is as awful a situation and uh, experience as you'll ever have. I mean, people, when they are most manic, tend to be more depressed than when they're most depressed. Uh, you know, most people who are manic uh, become psychotic. They're delusional, hallucinate. And uh, it's a, a frightening, horrible experience. But on the way up, is it intoxicating? Absolutely. Do people get addicted to it? In a true biologic sense, I think they do. It's, a very, it's very hard to convince patients who have very um, wonderful recollections of the early stages of mania to focus on the later stages of mania. They tend to focus on the earlier ones, and particularly when they're younger and haven't been hospitalized a lot. You do things that you think nobody else uh, has done before. It's just like God creating new things. I'm almighty and I know all and yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel like yeah, I'm God. <laughs> Mania is a, ultimately an extremely destructive state. It's violent. Uh, at least 50% of manic episodes are characterized by at least one act of physical violence. Uh, they're disruptive to relationships. People end up being fired from their jobs, losing their jobs, losing their relationships, losing everything that means something to them. Now that you've hit now me, that you've hit
and I hit you back. What's left for us but to retreat for good? Why should I care who launched the first attack, or keep recalling how at last I stood, or stooped, and gave up on both war and peace? I wouldn't fight you off, although I could, not wishing even for your blows to cease and end it all. The thought of hurting you, to feel my fists leap out to strike your face again, and see your eyes contract in pain, and watch you fall, is more than I can take. For all my righteous anger, I'm ashamed. You struck the first blow in the last, but why absolve myself of what is past? Depression, whether you want that perspective on life or not, and I don't know anybody who would willingly sign up for the perspective that depression brings. You are forced to look death in the face and mortality and morbidity and the awfulness of certain aspects of life and how finite existence is and how much suffering there is in the world. And certainly that in its own way will prompt a certain amount of of thinking, obviously, and expression. It's just like an empty street, a very long empty street, narrow, and it's very cloudy, and there's no end to it. If you don't have it, you don't know what it is. And it's very difficult because you live in another world sometimes, because you're depressed. It's hard to make contact with people. It's, it's like a continuous, very empty pain. And it goes on 24 hours a day. There's no escape. In that kind of situation, you, th- you begin to think of death as an, as an outlet, as an escape from the suffering. The most common time to get manic is in the summer months or the early fall. Like depression, there's a much stronger seasonal component in the wintertime with peak hospitalization rates um, being around either equinox or vernal equinox and the autumnal equinox. And in suicide, there's an extremely seasonal pattern. Late April, May, early June, far and away the most common time for suicide. Most people think of December and February winter months as being associated with suicide. But in fact, if you go back to the 15th century in England, there are good statistics on, on suicide. And those statistics have been common at the same pattern for centuries of, uh, again, a a pronounced increase in suicides in in late spring. And there are a lot of reasons for this. One is that there are a lot of changes in the brain chemistry with seasonal patterns, changes in serotonin levels and thyroid functioning and uh, so forth. But also, we know that people are often beginning to get over their depressions in late March, April. And a very high risk time for suicide is when people are beginning to recover from severe depression. Because often when people are extremely depressed, they don't have the energy and the will to kill themselves. And as they begin to get less depressed, they have more energy and often get agitated and may still have a very depressed mood, but they are agitated and are perturbed and restless. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling. 
around Christmas time, I suddenly get a, a burst of energy uh, despite all the medication I take. I have to take sleeping pills to ease myself down so I can get some rest. At the end of the period, you become chaotic, irritated, and things start falling uh, apart. Within two or three days, uh, you, you find yourself uh, in a big depression with no energy, no creativity, or, or nothing. It's all gone. And then I get my uh, spring uh, hype. This is the time I mostly lose my job because I'm over-agitated by everyone and everything has to be perfect and I want people to be just like me and they can't, they can't catch up with me because I'm doing uh, three, four times as much as, as I normally do. After that, I get a slight depression. End of July, begin August, I get a depression. If there's too much sunshine, I can't stand it. I stay inside, I lock myself up, and many relationships break up. <laughs> Lithium. If you take medicine, it feels like if you have a quilt on you. I can't say what is depression and what is the, the pills. I'm taking these pills for seven years, so I don't know anymore how it was before. 1,600 milligrams uh, a day, but uh, 1,200. My kidneys gave up. I got very ill and had to change the uh, medication. When I was first medicated, people were kept at very high doses, and I had very bad mania, and it was really the only way that I could be effectively treated. So it was a choice between my life, dying by suicide, uh, being in the back wards of hospital or taking medication. And I eventually, after much protesting and squealing, opted for medicine. Lithium. Lithium, lithium has um, had a, a very positive effect on getting manic and psychotic, but it affected my um, central nervous system very much in the sense that it made me extremely sleepy and I had a lot of problems concentrating remembering things and I was terrified that that was the lithium and I would never write again and about a year ago it, it, it just began again the lithium it makes you uh, tired and your feelings are more stable if you take it because it's not so intense if you if you live at lithium it's a muffled life carbamazepine carbamazepine i'm having carbamazepine right now 600 milligrams it's having a big effect on your energy level the first three months it wears you uh, down completely you, you you're barely able to do the most basic things like eating and, and, and shopping and that's it uh, you I'm not stopping with lithium because I need it I know because I saw a lot of people who stopped and fall down in, uh, again in depression there's no energy uh, left for anything else and I had to cut drinking because it's uh, too heavy on the liver 
There's no way I could not take my medication because I could get so sick that I could die. I would be dead. There's no question in my mind. I nearly died because of this illness. I have a very severe form of this disease. I have very psychotic manias, and I have very suicidal depressions. I don't have the option, and I don't feel medicated, and I don't feel like, I mean, I've done, you know, such work as I've done, whatever it may be worth, I've done medicated, you know. It's so it's hard for me to feel too sorry for myself for being on medication. I know where I would be without it. Well, slowly, slowly you will uh, get used to it, if if your liver allows it. Any idiot, any monkey can throw medications at a patient. The art and science of medicine is in doing it well and with a collaborative effort between the patient and the doctor. It's not just some sort of mindless dosing of somebody, you know, because for people who use their minds for a living... Nobody wants to be shorted out or stultified by medication. After 20 years of debilitating depression, I was desperate to get medicated. And it's only been in the last year or two that I realized that I missed the highs. But I wouldn't trade my life now for, you know, a life with... Well, like I said, you know, a, a few weeks of hypermania and then psychosis, which is, you know, there's psychotic and psychotic. Some people are very happy when they're psychotic. They love everybody and, you know, they give money away and they buy things and they're, you know. When I'm psychotic, I'm terrified. It's a nightmare. It's like everybody is after me. The postman is going to kill me, so I can't open the door to anyone, and you know I can't go anywhere, and it's it's uh, it's terrible. So I don't ever want to go through anything like that again. I greatly miss uh, the creative moments after I took the, the medication. I try to get some of it back and now I'm talking drugs <laughs> so I use uh, marijuana every day never skip today I need something more something uh, uh, that really can lift you up to a higher state and I'm talking uh, MDMA uh, better known as uh, ecstasy the problem is the doses I take is about double what normal uh, people take and it's very bad for your uh, memory and God knows what. It doesn't last uh, as long. Ecstasy is just for six hours. Uh, a hypermanic state can last for uh, three weeks. But it's the only thing that gives me an idea of what it could have been if I was in a hypermaniac state. tango dancer but if I'm in a hypermanic state and I go dance tango oh it's it's awful because I can't stick to the rhythm I dance tango uh, at least two times and sometimes three times as fast as it should <laughs> you know it's designed for elderly people and not for 
some speed junkie, uh, you know, uh, that's what I really am when I'm in a hypermanic state. Real speed comes from within, you know, it's natural, and all the artificial stuff is uh, fake. You also get more interested in sex when you're hypermanic. And this is a poem about that. Invitation to dance. Can you hear my drum beat? This noise, my lover, is desire calling near. Devoid of words, but speech at heart. Doesn't it speak to you? No mother tongue, say yours or mine, can strike its diet key at times it must be heard. Too random is the pulse and sway, my pendulum of lust. Sound is motion, darling, and I move faster as I lie and wait for you to hear my fever pound. Do get into my randy groove before the close and get me laid. Most artists and writers don't suffer from depression or manic depression, so clearly suffering is not a requirement for arts uh, any more than it is for high achievement or imagination in any other field. Does it help? Uh, has it been written about by artist after artist after artist, writer after writer, writer? Yes, absolutely. I mean, people very often, those people who are imaginative to begin with and creative to begin with, can get to the other side of depression and use that experience, the intensity of it, the suffering of it, um, and do something with it once they're over it. I don't think suffering in its own right is, is any, it doesn't create creativity. I mean, you have to be creative to begin with. But people who are creative certainly can turn their minds to using their experiences. And um, often, as, as Anthony Storr, the great English writer and uh, psychiatrists would say, you know, he, heal themselves, trying to heal themselves through their writing or their painting or their sculpting. There's definitely a taboo on, on mental illness. Most people I know who have manic depressive illness don't tell their employers. I've lost friends, people who just could not accept that I was still worthwhile as a person, even though I was sick. People have kept me away from their children because I would be dangerous <laughs> children. Stuff like that still goes on every day and it's, it's very, very painful to me that in this country you can't discriminate on the grounds of sexuality, religion, race, whatever, but people are still getting on a large scale, getting discriminated on the grounds of mental illness. And I think that's, that's an, out, an outrage. It's an outrage. It may be that only a small percentage of people who have manic depression are actively involved in moving society forward, but they do it disproportionately. And you probably always want a certain percentage of people in your gene pool and your in your society who are fiery and who rebel and who are carried away on dreams and and visions and so forth. So, without romanticizing a very bad disease, I think you want to really make it very clear that there's a lot to be said for diversity. On the other hand, there's nothing romantic about this illness for anyone who has it or for their family members. It's a devastating, destructive disease. It has a very high suicide rate. It kills a lot of people. It kills a lot of lives. It ruins people's existences.
If I could choose being bipolar or not, I would still choose to be bipolar because I still have the benefits of being bipolar. I have been through things. I have seen things. I've experienced things that most people never get to experience. I mean, I know what it is to be old and sick. I'm 34. I have the experience of severe grief and pain and it's the same with hypermania. You've been at places where other people don't get to be and other people try frantically to get there, you know, because they take cocaine and speed and heroin and I've had that and I've seen the world in a lot of different ways and that's still in my head. Nobody can take that away from me. Not only could I not turn my back on it, if I could, I wouldn't. It is who I am, but I, just, I would make that very clearly contingent on the fact that I respond well to medicine. I like the way my brain works because it's the only brain I know. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't particularly like my brain. Touched by Fire was produced by Dira Sujan for Radio Netherlands. The music was composed by Renee Klauving. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Let us know what's going on in your brain. Send us an email. Comments, questions, rants, raves, all go to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. In a real sense, the brain we develop reflects the life we lead. One of the most amazing things about the already amazing human body is that something big, huge, gigantic might be going on inside of you, and yet you can have absolutely no clue. Hannah Palin's mother was a very proper, polite, meticulous woman until one day she wasn't. Hannah's story is called The Day My Mother's Head Exploded. Boom, 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 goodbye, my Coney Island baby. Farewell, my own true love. There's something about that experience that was very freeing because it was just a typical Friday morning for me, you know, and all of a sudden by the end of the day I was almost dead. Turn again, so goodbye. Fifteen years ago, my mother had a brain aneurysm when she was only 46 years old. I've come to refer to it as the day my mother's head exploded. For those who don't know, and I didn't either, a brain aneurysm is a bulging spot on the wall of a brain artery, kind of like a thin balloon that can pop at the slightest provocation. When that happens, 50% of people die within minutes. The mother I grew up with died that day and was replaced by an entirely different person who just happens to have the same memories and body and family and address as my dead mother. Oh, I know what we can do. We'll sing, Hannah. Okay, okay, ready? Bum, 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 goodbye, my Coney Island baby. Hello, That's my mother and I singing together. My mother never used to sing. Now... She'll erupt into song at the mere hint of an attentive audience. A few years ago, she branched out into composition and wrote a song about Wendy's because she loves going there so much. She'll look at my stepfather and start singing, 
Wendy's, 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 Wendy's. I love Wendy's. Come with and she won't Wendy's. stop Wendy's. until she has a frosty Wendy's. in one hand and a hamburger Wendy's. with mustard, no pickles, Wendy's. in the other. You can go on forever. <laughs> Last year, she got a tattoo above her left knee, a little red heart on a green stem. It's the way she always signed her letters. She'll show her tattoo to anyone who asks. She'll even pull down her sweatpants so you can get a real good look at it. She always wears a pair of Groucho Marx glasses when she picks me up from the airport. She'll hand me my very own pair at the gate, and then I'm obligated to wear the thick black frames with the plastic nose and the fuzzy little mustache attached all the way to baggage claim. I tell myself, my mother wasn't always like this. My mother used to be very proper, very meticulous, very aware of social conventions. The ones that usually discourage people from wearing Groucho Marx glasses while singing Hey Good Looking in the middle of an airport. I'm just a completely different person. I used to be very uptight all the time. Oh, I was a great worrier. I would worry about the grocery shopping and what I had to buy and or my schedule the next day and what I had to do and if I had to take a shower and what time I had to get up. And I worried right up to the very day. Last summer, my mother was visiting me in Seattle and it happened to be the anniversary of her aneurysm. After years of avoidance, we finally talked about it. It was Friday the 20th of August and I woke up with a bad headache. And in the past, I go to an aerobics class and um, my headache would go away. And it was just like magic. It was, it was great. And I went to the aerobics class and I worked out a little bit and the headache just kept getting worse and worse. I was really overcome by this headache, you know, and somebody took it upon themselves to call 911 and I was laying on the couch and all these little men came in with a stretcher and whisked me off to St. Francis Hospital in Beacon. And that's the last thing I remember for four months. When my mother's head exploded, I was 24 years old, living in Chicago, an aspiring actor, which of course means I was working as a waitress. And on this particular morning, I was watching my three sons just waking up, drinking coffee. When my stepfather called from upstate New York to let me know that my mother had had a brain aneurysm. So on this steamy summer day, all I could think was, I'm going to a funeral. You're supposed to wear black clothes. Pack black clothes. I found the first flight I could to upstate New York and spent the next six hours trying to see my mother one last time before she died. When I finally arrived by my mother's bedside, my stepfather led me into the tiny room where my mother lay hooked up to every conceivable wire and monitor. I took her hand just to let her know that I was finally there, and she responded with a surprisingly tight squeeze. She knew her only child was there, and her spirit wanted to let me know how happy she was, but her fragile body just couldn't handle it. Every monitor in the room went crazy. Alarm bells went off. The room became this living thing, hissing and beeping, consuming my mother's lifeblood. Nurses and doctors filled the room. My mother tightened her grip on my hand. 
and then I fainted. It turns out that was the second time my mother died and was revived. The first was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Eventually, her condition stabilized. She was moved into neurological intensive care. It was this large room staffed by two nurses working with three other patients who came and went with regularity, stroke victims, head injuries, cerebral hemorrhages, while my mother stayed put until they could finally operate to repair her aneurysm sometime in October. I woke up for very selective parts of it, you know. Once I remember everybody being in a real fuss about it snowed on October 4th, and they called it snow leaf. I remember looking up out of the windows and I could see red leaves on the trees and good-sized snow. There were huge periods of time when we didn't know what you were doing. Mm. <laughs> you were just up there. I was looking at the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> A parade of people came to visit. While she was in neurointensive care, we could only see her for 15 minutes every three hours. We spent a lot of time in the cafeteria eating sinfully good french fries and drinking really bad coffee. I was in a new age phase at this point in my life, so I insisted on putting healing crystals under her pillow and playing tapes of ocean waves and massaging her feet to make sure the chi was flowing. I'd sit outside in the sunshine and meditate, trying to reach my mother on the astral plane, but the only message I ever received was that she was still deciding whether to stay or go. In early November, my mother had been moved into a regular hospital room, and she was able to sit up and talk a little bit and was conscious, although not exactly coherent. One day, I couldn't help but ask my mother where she thought her spirit had gone while the rest of her lay unconscious at the Westchester Medical Center. She told me she'd been in Vietnam. Well, I remember that I was um, a little old man in Vietnam, and I grew vegetables. It has something to do with reincarnation, I think. I don't know if that was a previous life, or that's the life I'm going to, or what, but it was so far away from anything I know now. I know nothing about vegetables, and I know nothing about Vietnam, and I know nothing about being a little old man, but that's what it was. Do you remember at the rehab center? Oh, yes, I hated that place. Just hated it. The nurses were real brusque and rude. I mean, the physical therapy staff were, were mean. I'd get in my wheelchair, I'd come to the door of my room, and I'd look down the hall, and I couldn't remember which way to go. And I'd have to go all the way around looking for the room where the food was. And then once I got to the food, it was all just terrible. Have you ever had a piece of steak that's been mushed up in the blender so that it's just mushy and runny? <laughs> I remember the rehab hospital, too. Everyone there seemed exhausted, like they all just wanted to go home. I used to hang out in the smoking lounge with stroke victims who just couldn't kick the habit, with orderlies on break, and, and in particular, one woman who'd been in a house fire with burns over 85% of her body. It made me just want to go home, too. 
And one day, I was sitting in my wheelchair, <laughs> and um, I, a young man who was obviously a doctor walked by, and he said, you don't know who I am, do you? You don't remember me. I looked at him and didn't have any idea who he was, and I said, no. And he's the fellow who did my surgery. It was a funny kind of sensation to meet this person that, you know, had done such intimate surgery on me that I had no idea who he was. And that was one of the strangest effects of my mother's experience in the hospital. She doesn't remember most of it. Not Vivian, the lovely neurological intensive care nurse who patiently explained my mother's condition to us every day. She missed the daily 45-minute commutes down two-lane highways from the rented condo in Beacon to the hospital in White Plains. She didn't know that we tried to find someone to visit her every single day she was in the hospital. She doesn't have any idea how my stepfather and I spent our evenings eating my really bad cooking, watching TV, and drinking a little too much so that we could forget to. When Christmas came around, my mother was still just the shell of a person. She could barely talk. She still had a feeding tube coming out of her stomach. She needed help going to the bathroom. She was using a walker. Really, she should not have been outside of a nursing facility. I had to learn to walk again. I had to learn to climb stairs. I had to learn to read again. But I had to learn to do everything all over again because I just had to start from scratch almost. It was a real weird sensation being 46 years old and having to learn to walk again. Over the months, I had become my mother. I taught myself to cook because she'd been a gourmet. I kept the house immaculate because she always had. My father and I talked about what we'd done that day over a glass of wine or on really bad days a martini because that was his routine with my mother. I began to see for the first time that my stepfather was a really great husband, and I enjoyed his friendship a lot. But the better my mother got, the less my father needed me to fill that role, so the more I became the cantankerous, argumentative stepdaughter again. It was just really time to go home. In February, my mother was released from the hospital. In March, my grandmother came to take over the caregiving duties, and I returned to Chicago to pick up my life where I left off. When I returned home, I found myself grieving and feeling really guilty about it. I mean, my mother was alive. I was supposed to be happy. But I just kept feeling like she was gone forever. I used to miss my mother so much I could barely breathe, especially early on. I wanted my pal, my confidant, my role model back. I tried to connect with the woman who'd taken her place, but it was just so hard. In the aftermath of an explosion, I mean, there's nothing. And I'd forgotten that it takes a long time to rebuild layer upon layer to make something new, to make something different. I ordered myself to have patience, to wait it out. I was her daughter. She needed me. And then slowly, very slowly, this other person began to emerge. I used to be very perfectionist-oriented. Now, if things 
are perfect, that's nice. If they're not so perfect, it's okay. <laughs> it's all just okay. Yeah, I, yeah, everything is okay. I love sex now. I didn't, wasn't too crazy about it before. I don't know what the difference is, but um, I'm just more open to that kind of thing now. <laughs> they gave me an eye patch at the at the um, hospital in the hospital because um, I had double vision after the aneurysm. The patch eliminated one of the visions so that I could at least read and drive and walk. Whenever my mother went out to the grocery store or to the mall, little kids would stare at her and say, Mommy, it's a pirate. And then my mother would stare right back at him and just say, Boo! They usually started crying. You should talk about Wendy's. Wendy's, Wendy's, Wendy's? Wendy's, Wendy's, Wendy's. Oh, well, I just love Wendy's. Wendy's, 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 Wendy's. That's one thing. Before my aneurysm, I never would have, never, ever, would I have even set foot in a fast food restaurant. If a Wendy's hamburger is in that part that you define as living, you better do it. And it is in that part that I define as, as living. As the years have gone on, the memories of my old mama faded more and more. I've really come to love this new woman, but in a completely different way. I've really come to love her outbursts of song and her rather brusque comments like, well, you are fat. You also like to sing now. Oh, yes, I love to sing. I don't remember you singing before. No. After the uh, accident, I could barely talk. I decided that singing would help me get my voice back. It made me feel good, too. Somebody said, I'm so impressed that you know all the words to Goodbye My Pony Island Baby. And I never thought about it, but it is kind of an obscure song to know all the words to. It's completely weird when you think about it. Yeah. It's really strange. Yeah. I don't know. For me, it's kind of, it's like, it's fun, but it also can be really embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> to stand up in front of a group of family and friends and start singing Goodbye My Coney Island Baby. It's like... In front of family? Yeah. I don't know. I mean... Well, how do you think I felt at the Mayfield School standing up on the stage singing Goodbye My Coney Island Baby all by myself when singing both parts is really a bitch? <laughs> Did I leave you standing up there? Where was I? Was I being embarrassed? I don't know. I sang with you. No, you didn't. Uh -huh. Did you? Well, you came in late then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you spend most of your life developing a persona that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. The right clothes, attitude, outlook. And while it can be comfortable and secure, it can also become a prison. When my mother's head exploded, she had a chance to start all over again. The slate was wiped clean. And for me, too, really. In those months, I became acutely aware of what was real, what was important. Sitting at the hospital by my mother's bedside? Important. Getting an audition for a telephone commercial? Pointless. 
My mother's illness was one of those moments when time stops, when normal disappears, when you marvel that everyone else in the world can still laugh and go to the movies and complain about the weather. That's an explosion. In those moments, you can see life happen. It has clarity and meaning in the midst of all of its horror and pain. But then those moments pass, and you're consumed by the trivia of daily life once again. Sometimes when I'm overwhelmed by the task of making my way through the world, I try to focus on the fact that the electric bill does not matter. The idiot glued to their cell phone does not matter. The mind-numbing day job truly does not matter. But welcoming the strange and the different, being open and available for my husband, my friends, my family, experiencing love and laughter as often as possible, that's what matters. Because it can all be taken away in one brilliant flash. Do you feel different than other people? Well, I don't know. I don't know how other people feel. <laughs> but I do know that I don't worry about death at all. Not at all. Because I've kind of seen it and I've been there, you know. And, and that's very liberating. Did you have any memory of near-death experience? No. A lot of people have asked me that, but I didn't. Didn't see the white light or no. Mm -hmm. or anything. Well, not unless being a farmer, a vegetable farmer in Vietnam is the other side. <laughs> you know, that could be what heaven's all about, being a vegetable farmer in Vietnam. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the whole thing. The Day My Mother's Head Exploded by Hannah Palin. Hannah has been an actress, filmmaker, caterer, and audio producer. This was her first story, produced in 2003 with assistance from the Jack Straw Artist Support Program in Seattle. Our final story on ReSound is also the work of a beginning producer, this time from the Salt Center for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. It's a story of depression, and with it, hope and love, frustration and acceptance. It's called simply, Sit With Me. I realized that my dad was different when I was about 10. As any one of my friends said something, it, you know, it wasn't an offense towards my dad or anything, but they um, said something, you know, that had the depressed word. And at that time, I remember I'm pretty sure I was doing like a book project where I had to look up these words. And as he said it, I really wonder what that word meant. By looking it up in the dictionary, I finally realized that it was to be like sad all the time. Then, you know, it finally all connected together, you know, see my dad like that and stuff. My name is Cameron Ledoux. I am 12 years old and I live in Westbrook, Maine. My dad doesn't work because he's depressed. Sometimes he'll just, like, sit and read. Sometimes, you know, he'll just, like, sit and, like, stare at the wall or something. Or he'll sit down and just, you know, watch TV. I just kind of, like, leave him as he is. Most of the time, I'm up in my room, because that's basically my own little house. I mean, I have TV in there, 
got my own computer, which has, you know, like, AIM and all that stuff. Like, I was even going to bring one of those little mini fridges up there. Me and my girlfriend wanted to go to the movies, and my mom wasn't home. Neither was my sister, so it's just, like, me and my dad. And we need a ride, and um, she was wondering if my dad could give us a ride. But of course, you know, he was sleeping. So of course we negotiated to have her mom bring us there and back. And on the way there, she was just wondering why my dad couldn't give us a ride. I just told her that my dad had a night job and just slept through the day. Felt kinda mad at myself for not saying the truth about, you know, how my dad is depressed. I deal with my dad's depression by sort of ignoring it. So that's why I wanted to sit down and talk to him about it. What does it feel like to be depressed? It's hard to explain. You really can't understand it unless you go through it. But the feeling itself is being uh, disassociated with everything else in life. You can see everybody uh, living around you, eating, watching TV, uh, answering the phone, but you're not part of it. One night when I was going to go to the movies, and um, I was going to you know, ask you for a ride, but you were sleeping. And that one night, it was just me and you. What time about was it? Nine. Okay. And, you know, when I got into the car, you know, they asked me why was, you know, your dad sleeping. And I just said, he has a night job. So, so it tells me, Kay, uh, Cameron, right away that you are somewhat uh, embarrassed about me being uh, disabled. But you know what? You don't need to be. You can tell them. My dad has depression. And sometimes it's hard for him to even get out of bed. That's nothing to be ashamed about, Cameron. You understand? I understand. Okay. Just say, hey, my dad went through some rough stuff. He's going through some deep depression, which is hard to, hard to cope with. And he's in bed as a result of it. Because he's not lazy. And you tell him, my dad isn't lazy. It's the last thing. You know, I don't collect money for no reason through Social Security, you know. I can't hold a job. I can't keep the responsibility. face has about six kind of little stabs, you know, on his, like, left and right cheeks. I think there's, like, one on his chin. And he's just, you know, been, like, addicted to picking them. I'll be like, hey, Dad, you know, stop. He'll just, you know, keep on doing whatever he's doing, you know, while picking. So I, I can't tell you how many times I've been with my dad and all of a sudden I hear, oh, Cameron, don't get me a napkin. I'll look over and like right here is bleeding. I think, oh, he's picking again? Some people have like asked him like, oh, did it hurt? Or did he win or stuff like that? You know, that's what bothers me. When people just all of a sudden think, oh, something must have happened. Nothing happened.
If you weren't depressed, like, what would be, like, different? I'll tell you, it would be a lot different. Uh, I wouldn't be so much of a shut-in uh, of, of the, you know, the world. Like, I'd be out and about more with, and raise my head more high. I'd feel a lot better, uh, sure of myself and proud of myself. It hurts me to think that I'm not doing everything a dad can do for my kids. You know, going out and doing things, or looking, looking uh, clean and shaven, or uh, go to go to your school looking like I do sometimes. I feel bad for my dad because he doesn't really have anything good coming out of his life. You know what I mean? His life is like getting nowhere. It's not, you know, it's not like he's trying to get a promotion or, you know, some great things are going to happen to him. Um, Dad, when you do get depressed, like days like this, what could I, like, do to help you? Believe it or not, the most you can do for me and, and uh, is just to sit near me or hold my hand. Just sit with me and, and keep me company. But Cameron, listen, I love you with all my heart, my son. And I'm sorry for all the shortcomings of me being a dad because of my illness. And, and, and not my illness, you know, I'm a human being, but I want you to know I love you with all my heart. Whatever I can do, I'm going to do for you. I love you, Cameron. Sit With Me was produced by Mike Bernstein for the Salt Center for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.